morning. It's good to be with you again this morning. And um, as I spoke with Craig and as he asked me to come and teach and as I evaluated and uh, sought direction on what I might uh, teach that could best serve you, I wasn't led to anything unique. I wasn't led to anything that probably you haven't heard before. Um, And in the great challenge of actually being a teacher is that the Scriptures are actually not very hard to understand. What the Bible says is actually not very um, difficult. What the Scriptures have revealed about God's intent for our life and how He expects us to live is actually not very challenging. Um, Obeying the Scriptures, doing what He has clearly revealed seems to be the rub. It seems to be the rub in my life. It seems to be the rub in my children's life as I seek to parent them. Um, My desire for them to love one another, for them to share with one another, uh, is very clear. It has been made clear. Uh, Their willingness and their ability to submit to that desire and to obey and to treat one another in the way that I would have them treat one another seems to be where the great difficulty lies. And so this morning I thought I would just direct our attention to a familiar passage, to a familiar parable. It it may be something that you already know or have heard many times. Um, My goal isn't to teach anything novel. Um, I'm all about orthodoxy. My goal is not to teach you or say or tell you anything that you haven't heard before, but to stir up within you as a way of reminder, as Peter said to those that he wrote to in his epistle. um, Our hearts need reminding our heads don't necessarily need reminding. So you may go, I know what he's going to say. I heard. It's not our heads that need reminding. It's our hearts that need reminding. And so this morning, I just hope to remind your hearts of the goodness of Jesus. That's where we're going. So if you will, uh, turn with me in the Scriptures to the Gospel according to Luke. We'll be in the 10th chapter, beginning in verse 25. The pretext of the parable that is known or referred to as the Good Samaritan is this. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus replied to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So the pretext of our famous parable that Jesus teaches is this idea that is being presented that we all use as an excuse, which is, what's required of me? This is kind of like coming to the teacher saying, or as the teacher, as the, a lawyer stood up to, to test Jesus or to ask him a question, it's, it's the, is this going to be on the test? Like, I, 
that's all good, and I know you really like this subject, and you went to school and got a doctorate, and you're a teacher of it, and there's probably lots of things that you want to tell me that I don't necessarily need to know. What I need to know is what's going to be on the test. Just tell me what's on the test. I'll make sure I know that. I'll make sure to let you know that I know what you said I need to know, and then we can move on. I can move on with my life. You can move on with your discourse. And so, essentially, that's what he's asking Jesus. Jesus, in the final evaluation, what's going to be on the test? And this is a question that Jesus himself was asked before, if you're familiar, uh, in Matthew's gospel. A lawyer put him to the test saying, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? So he's not asking um, what it is necessarily to inherit, inherit eternal life. He's just saying, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and prophets. And so uh, I like to think of this guy as kind of the teacher's pet. Kind of like, I was paying attention when you said that before, and I know the answer. Oh, 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 I know, I know, I know. I know what the answer is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, rather than being commended, Jesus says, yeah, just do that. And that introduces what I opened with is the real rub is not that we don't know what the, the Scriptures teach. It's not that we're unclear about what God intends us to do. It's the doing that's the difficult part. If I tell my children, I want you to be excited about all the presents your brother or your sister are going to get on their birthday and be as, have as much energy and excitement as you would for them as you would for yourself as if it was your own birthday. But what I see rise up is jealousy and um, same thing, you know, on Christmas morning. It's great that they're opening their presents. Which, which, you know, can I open another one of mine now? Well, no, you know, let's, let's take some turns. Let's be excited about the gifts that others are being given. No, well, no, I don't really want... I don't really care what they get. I, you know, I'm more concerned about what has my name on it because I shook it and I know I have an expectation of what it's going to be. I'm concerned about me. And so knowing what God intends for us, that he wants us to love others with the, uh, the same amount of thoughtfulness, with all of our mind, the same amount of strength, with the same amount of energy, that I would be as thoughtful to others as I am to myself, as I was be, as be, uh, get, devote as much strength and energy to someone else's problems as I do to my own. I honestly, if I'm honest, struggle to do that with my own wife and children, much less my neighbor or my coworker or my co-commuter. I never see anyone, you know, looking and evaluating the checkout lines going, hmm. Praise the Lord, they found a faster line. <laughs> never, never occurred to me, right? What is it in us? What, what I think we're supposed to see here is that the struggle isn't just with him, it's with us. It's not just a yeah, this selfish, self-centered, self-justifying individual uh, that didn't know better than to test Jesus. 
Jesus tells him, yeah, go, go do that and you will live. And so he says his response is desiring to justify himself. Now, this is where we should identify ourselves in the story. Desiring to justify himself. Because what we do is we have to reconcile what we know to be true, what we know we should be like, what we know we should be doing, how we should be acting, how we should be responding, how we should be treating others, and then what we actually do in life. And when those things don't line up, we need to justify something. If, if you're in construction, you know that to justify something means to make something straight. It's to, something is crooked and it needs to be straightened. And so there are two things that you can do. You can, in this situation, we can move the law so that it's in conformity and in alignment with my life. Or we can adjust my life to bring it in conformity to the law which is the way the Scriptures were intended. It's the standard by which we're supposed to conform ourselves. It's not something that we say, well, this is my life and this is how I'm living, and to justify my behavior, I'm going to change something about what is written. But this is what he does. He does what we do. He seeks to justify that his behavior doesn't line up with what he knows it should be. See, The law is love. I know you've spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy. This passage is from Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Leviticus 19 says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the other piece that he says all of the law is fulfilled in. That um, admonition in Leviticus is on an extensive section where it's showing practically what it means to love people. If you go back and you look... It's telling those that have property that they are not to reap to the end of their property, that they're to leave the outskirts, they're to leave the corners. They're not to maximize their profits for their own gain, but they're to minimize them. They're to leave so that the poor can gather along the edges of the property, that you're to provide for your neighbor, literally. The poor among you, those who don't have enough, And the practical way in which you do that is that you're not looking to squeeze everything you can out of every parcel of land that you have so that you can just spend it on yourself, but you're to leave some for others as a practical expression of love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans, Paul tells the church there that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He tells the Galatians, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James, so not just Paul, but James says, uh, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing a sin and convicted by the law as a transgressor. And so this questioner is convicted by the law. He has shown partiality. Thus the question, well, who's my neighbor? (laughs) Because I have loved some people well. I have not loved some others well. I have shown partiality. If I was to apply that law to everyone, I would be convicted as a sinner. uh, And therefore I need to 
qualify my love. But the scriptures are strong about this. Our love of people is our proof of our love of God. That's why the New Testament writers can say the whole law is summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You fulfill the whole law if you do that one thing because your love of others demonstrates your love for God. It's the practical outworking of it. If you want to demonstrate that you love me, then love what I love. If any of you are waiting tables and I come in with my family, if you want to serve me, serve my kids. Take care of my kids. Make sure their needs are met. That's the best way that you can serve me. Actually, that's the best way you can serve me all of the time. <laughs> right? Anyone with young kids, how, how blessed are they when someone says, hey, we'd love to watch your kids so that you can go out to dinner. I mean, I, I tell my wife, we'd get out and be like, hey, you want to go rent a room and take a nap? <laughs> you know, just, go, just find a place and we can just go sleep somewhere where it's quiet. If you want to love somebody, you love what they love. You love, particularly in God's case, you love who they love. So, as I said, knowing what the Bible says, what the Bible asks of us is not hard. It's pretty clear. The difficult part is actually in the doing. And so, what, because what is difficult for us, what we seek to do is not to change and to stay the same. I would like to continue doing what I am doing. I would like to continue to live the way I am living. I would like not to change. And so in order to justify my continued disobedience, I'm going to try to find an excuse or make an excuse or a loophole. Loopholes, technicalities, excuses, these are the ways in which we seek to stay the same, to justify ourselves. Maybe... You've heard this on the lips of someone else. No elbows, okay? How can I continue to do what I'm doing instead of doing something different? Maybe that thought has crossed your mind. I would like to continue what I'm doing instead of doing something different. How can I continue to remain the same instead of changing? How can I get out of obeying the spirit of the law by exploiting the letter of the law? In order to avoid dealing with how I'm at fault or for breaking the law, I find some fault in how the law is written or in the behaviors of others. He started it is, is the one that my children use a lot. Returning evil for evil. Well, the evil started there. Yeah, but you don't return evil for evil. That's not justification, Right? I want to justify my evil behavior by their evil behavior. That's finding fault in the way the law is written, the way the law is expressed, the way the law is obeyed or disobeyed. Well, they're corrupt. They're disobedient. Our leadership is not uh, what it should be, and so therefore I'm justified in ignoring them, dishonoring them, disrespecting them. My enemies don't deserve to be prayed for. So I'm not going to pray for them. They don't, my spouse doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Ever. Always her fault. Right? 
that disposition of I am going to withhold love, I'm going to withhold forgiveness, I'm going to withhold mercy, I'm going to withhold something because I feel like that person isn't justified of it. That's finding a loophole. That's seeking to make an excuse. Sometimes we overturn justice due to others by saying that an injustice was done to me. How can I demonstrate I'm in the right when it appears I'm in the wrong? How can I justify my behavior so I don't have to change my behavior? This is all a disposition that is self-centered, self-serving. It's not God-centered, others-serving. It's not God-serving. It's in complete contradiction to the direction of Scripture. And ultimately, loophole thinking, excuse-making, showing partiality and finding technicalities in order to justify ourselves, initially in the moment when we're doing it, it makes sense, but eventually it actually does more damage than good. And it leads to a what-can-I-get-away-with mentality. How little can I do and it be considered doing enough? How little can I give and it be considered enough? How much can I do and it not be considered too much? In other words, how far is too far in dating? When I was in college ministry, that was a big question, right? How far is too far? That's not a question that's seeking holiness. How holy? I never got that question. Sean, how how? How can I pursue holiness? It's how can I, how far can I go? How, how selfish can I be? And it still be acceptable to God, pleasing to God, not an offense to God. In what, and ultimately, it's just a way of saying, in what ways can I continue to live for myself and still live for God? In this scenario, Jesus tells a parable to answer the question, to undo the self-justifying disposition of his heart and our hearts. He tells a story, a very well-known story, perhaps the most well-known story that Jesus has taught. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so what Jesus actually does by introducing these two characters, particularly into his story, is he exposes our disposition for technicalities and excuse-making by giving us two characters who can appeal to excuses who can appeal to technicalities for their behavior. To justify their lack of love for the man in need, he introduces two people who have got an excuse. They've got a doctor's note. Because look what he says. This is a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho. He is going from the city of God to the city of Cursing. He's going from the land of blessing to the land that has been cursed, to Jericho in Samaria. 
See, this would have been fresh on their minds. That's why Samaritan is brought into the picture uh, later. But you've kind of, this is most illustrated, and it's a terrible um, thing, but you've probably heard it about people who kind of deserve what they got. What were they doing in that part of town at that time of night wearing that type of outfit? The fact that that would come out of someone's mouth illustrates what was in their heart, which is a self-justifying behavior. And Jesus says, he's headed to Jericho in Samaria. See, that is a land of cursing. In 1 Kings, the, the most evil of the, of the northern kings uh, is illustrated in this um, I'm going to skip this long passage and get for you uh, Ahab, the son of Omri. So after Omri, who's Ahab's father, who's an evil, wicked king, establishes um, a kingdom in, in Samaria and buys this hill, they erect idolatry and temple worship there. Um, and as if it had been a light thing for him, that is Ahab, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took for himself Jezebel, and served Baal and worshipped him, and erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So here's the establishment, the ultimate idolatrous, evil, wicked king in the Old Testament. In the, their thinking would have been Ahab, and, and the pinnacle of his idolatry and wickedness is erecting a temple to a false god in Samaria and establishing this worship there. And as if that wasn't enough, he also had in his day Bethel, a Hiel of Bethel built, rebuilt Jericho. Which, remember, and the walls came tumbling down, right? Remember, like, like Jericho was toppled. Jer- Jericho was destroyed and Jericho was cursed by God uh, Joshua says, at the cost of his firstborn shall the man who rises up and rebuild the city lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest shall he set up his gates. And that prophecy came to fruition in the time of Ahab. A man rebuilt Jericho at the cost of his firstborn, it says, according to the word of the Lord. At the cost of his youngest, he established its gates. And so, the rebuilding of the anarchy has been established in this place. It's not a place where God's blessing resides, but literally a place cursed before the Lord. Why is this man leaving Jerusalem for Jericho in the first place? Why is he headed to that place with those people? You can see that that might be an excuse that would come to the mind of a hearer. But if that wasn't enough, he takes a Levite and a priest and puts them in that position because he wants to make sure they have plenty of excuses. See, priests served in the temple. Their highest duty was to offer sacrifices. And in the Levitical code that outlines their behavior, it says he shall not make himself unclean among his people and profane himself. The, the high priest couldn't even leave the temple and the altar uh, even if his parents had died. They shall not go into any dead bodies, even for his father or mother. It says that anyone touches a priest... Uh, who touches in Leviticus 22, who touches a dead body or comes in contact with him shall be unclean. 
And there are ceremonial responsibilities and responses to that uncleanliness. In Numbers, it says, whoever touches a dead body shall be unclean for seven days. So if they were going to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice, or if they were going to Jericho or taking that road to go somewhere else in order to serve sacrificially, either in the temple in Jerusalem or in a local setting, they would have disqualified themselves for service. If he had been serving in Jerusalem and going home and then he touched this dead body or that has um, blood and and all all the emissions that would have made him ceremonially unclean, he could not have performed his priestly duty. He, He could, after seven days, he could, after having leave the camp and having to go outside the city, he could, after offering a bull and going through the ceremonial ritual rites that demonstrated and taught the holiness of God, but it would have come to a cost, a great, a great cost and a great inconvenience. Anybody who's been away out of town on business and then he's coming home and is looking forward to fellowship with his wife and he goes, you know, if I stop and I do this, I'm not going to be able to actually spend time with my family. I'm not going to be able to see my wife. I'm not going to be able to fulfill my familial responsibilities. I'm going to have to go outside the camp for seven more days. That's not very loving to my wife. I want to love my wife and love my, I mean, can you see how this can kind of start to play out in your head, right? Well, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. I, you know, if I stop on the way, I, if I stop on the way home, then I'm going to be late, and you know, it's been a long day. It's the witching hour between, I don't know, between, actually between the time my kids get up and kids go to bed. It's really difficult for my wife, and so you know, I'm going to try to get home as soon as I can, pulling over, helping somebody, staying late, and listening to somebody. You know, th- that would be just a great inconvenience and a great burden on her. Th- that's the sort of thinking here. The priests and Levites basically say, "I've got a verse." I have got a verse that says that I am not supposed to touch somebody like this. I'm not supposed to help somebody like this. I'm not supposed to get involved. This is someone else's responsibility. This is someone else's duty. This is, I've got a, I've got a verse. See, it's this loophole thinking, this technicality thinking, this making excuses thinking that actually prevents the doing that God intends us to do. See, that sort of thinking, can you see how that's different than someone who says, what's going to happen to them if I don't help them? If I don't help them, if someone doesn't give them care, if someone doesn't listen to them, if someone doesn't pull over, if someone doesn't take the time to uh, help them meet their needs or pay their bills or spend time with their, I mean, if someone doesn't, help them? What's going to happen to them? Are they going to suffer alone? Are they going to die alone? Is their marriage going to come apart? Are their children going to be neglected? Are their needs going to be met? Are there, I mean, there's, you can think of uh, any numerous examples of people in your life for a variety of reasons who are in need or who are in want And Jesus is teaching that his way of thinking, his way of living, God's way of thinking, and God's way of living is not to say, what happens to me, but instead says, what happens to them. And they are both culpable in this situation. I've always uh, just been struck every time I read it and, and teach on it that it says, Jesus says, 
The robbers left him for half dead. Half dead. Why that phrase? That's just a unique phrase. I never, I've got friends that work in the ER, you know, and I've never kind of heard that phrase. Stat. Well, he's half dead. You know, like, what does that mean? But in this illustration, I think what it means is that there are two people responsible for the condition of this man. There are those who sinned against him by what they did to him. And there are those who sinned against him by what they did not do for him. He's half dead. And whether he, or another way, if you're an optimist, the glass is half full. He's half alive. Which direction this guy goes as he sits on the brink from death to life, whether he will become completely dead or if he will be restored to life, that distinction falls on those who are called to help, to love, to serve, to say, if I don't do something, he will be completely dead. What happens if I don't help him? His his situation will continue to deteriorate. He just won't be half dead. He'll be fully dead. I will be just as responsible as those who put him in the condition that he's in. I'm just as responsible. See, you can quickly see this come out in our talk, in our racial reconciliation conversation, especially in the South where we seek to justify ourselves. I didn't kidnap them. I did not bring them in boats. I did not enslave them. It wasn't me. It's not my fault that this whole community of people is in the position that they're in. I, yes, but are you content to leave them there? Whether we like it or not, there is an inequality in our society about distribution of wealth, about a variety of things. I'm not saying we should politically enact any of that. I'm not promoting any sort of political agenda. I'm trying to expose a mindset that shows that we are very quick to run to one side to justify our uninvolvement, our lack of concern, our lack of care for the injustices done to others, for the plight of others, for the problems of others. Whether they brought it upon themselves whether they made bad choices financially, whether they made bad choices morally, whether it be unwed single moms who have struggled with drug addiction, or victims of abuse, they're still people in need. And rather than harden our hearts against them, we should be asking, our, asking the question, what happens if I do nothing? What's going to happen to them? I'm less concerned about what happens to me, and I'm more concerned about what happens to them. This is why in the Book of Common Prayer, the confession of sin is, merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, the robbers, and by what we have left undone, the priest and the Levite. There are things that we know we should not do and we do them. There are things that we know we should do, and we don't do them, and we are sinning in both cases. 
And Jesus wants to expose that reality. He is half dead. But in the story, a Samaritan comes along. Someone who asks the question, what happens to him instead of what happens to me? Who quickly could have said, this is a dangerous, if you read commentaries, everyone always likes to point out that these are treacherous roads that are narrow with lots of cliffs and places where thieves can hide. And there's, it's the wrong side of the tracks and the wrong side of town. It's dangerous, you know. There's no pizza delivery after dark in this place, right? He very quickly could have said, I need to make my way. This is a dangerous place. I need to get where I'm going. I shouldn't linger here long. He very quickly could have justified his inactivity as well. Maybe he was a Jew. Maybe he didn't look like, you know, Samaritans don't have any dealings with Jews. There's lots of ways that he could have found excuses. There's lots of ways that you find excuses and I find excuses. But at the end of the day, he said, what does love require? And what would happen to him if I did nothing? And you know how the story goes. He came to where he was and he saw him and he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he said on him, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you to come back. So at a cost of time, inconvenience, financial cost, physical cost, he's walking instead of riding his donkey. There's, there's a variety of things there, but, but do you notice that it all began with the fact that he had compassion He just saw him as a fellow person. And he had compassion on him. It's the number one feeling that's associated when you read the scriptures with Jesus. Is that Jesus continually looked upon people and had compassion on them. So I just want to Again, not remind your head, but remind your heart of the gospel this morning. The reality is that love always comes with sacrifice. That in order to love others, even to love God, it comes with a sacrifice. Love without sacrifice is just convenience. Don't lie to yourselves. If you only love people when it's convenient, if you only help people when it's convenient, if you only listen to people or serve people or give to people when it's convenient, that's not love. It's convenient kindness. See, every act of love involves a substitution. The good Samaritan substitutes his time and his money for someone else's health and well-being He sacrifices and risks his own safety to bring them into security. This movement of love is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the good news. Jesus exchanged his life for ours. Every act of love has an exchange. 
Every act of love comes at a cost. Every act of love comes with a sacrifice. The Bible, the Scriptures teach us that this is what happened on the cross. Our sin and our self-centeredness comes to Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The exchange, the sacrifice that it took for Jesus to love us. When he looked upon us and said, what will happen to them if I don't do anything? What will happen to them? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves, he said. I'm more concerned about what's going to happen to you than I'm about what's going to happen to me. Yes, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. I, I don't enjoy suffering. I don't take pleasure in pain. I'm not a sadist, but God, not my will, but yours be done. If there be another way, but there was no other way. There was no other way for God to love us without sacrifice. And so our heavenly neighbor looked upon us and had compassion on us, and he emptied himself and paid the ultimate cost. Jesus shows more compassion, heals deeper wounds, pays a greater debt, bears a greater cost, and he came to save us from a life of splitting hairs, bending the truth, searching for technicalities, looking for loopholes. He came to save us from having to justify ourselves. He came to justify us himself. He came, not that you had have to make yourself right, but to, he came to make you right with God. You ha- don't have to straighten yourself out. He will do it for you. He has done it for you. And he didn't come so you can continue to do what you're doing instead of doing something different. He didn't come so you would continue to remain the same instead of changing. He came to change you. But he came to change you in such a way that you will never be the same. He came to conform you to his image. He doesn't want you to try to living for yourself and for God. He wants you to die to yourself because he died for you. He wants you to come and die to yourself and live for him and to love others so that you can truly find the life that began the question here. How do I find life? You lay down your life and you follow him who laid down his life to love you at infinite cost to himself who was more concerned about what would happen to you than what would happen to him. I hope this morning that your heart is reminded of the good news and that your head isn't just reminded of the good deeds that you're supposed to do. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you come to save us from a life of justifying ourselves, of seeking to make ourselves right, to justify our living, to Thank you that you saved us from a life of making excuses. That we don't have to look for technicalities. We don't have to look for loopholes. 
We don't have to make excuses for the things that we've done, for the things that we've left undone because of what you've done on our behalf. Thank you that you are more concerned about us than yourself, that you asked the question, what would happen to them if I did nothing? And rather than do nothing, you did everything. You came and were tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. You came and you laid down your life in order to love us. You just didn't say that you loved us. You just didn't um, tell us that you felt something for us, but you demonstrated your love for us by coming and dying. Thank you that as we look to you and as we receive that love, that you pour your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom you have given to us and that we can now go and love others because of the love with which we have been loved. Thank you for your love. Holy Spirit, enable us to love others with the same love we ask in Jesus' name and for the good of our neighbors. Amen.